Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture tip-off. I'm Andrew Harrison. And I'm Sean Pattenden. This week we are delighted to have with us the gruesomely talented songwriter and musician Bernard Butler. He's the wizard of six strings, except it turns out he's a multi-instrumentalist. Bernard is here to talk about the deluxe re-release of his 98 album, People Move On. We also revel in the company of our other special guest, nimble-footed broadcasting legend... On this week's show, we're going to discuss the new BBC three-part documentary, Andy Warhol's America, promising to look at the social context behind the world's most well-known pop artist. And we listen to Night Call, the eagerly awaited album from Ollie Alexander's Years and Years. Plus, we've seen Indonesian thriller Photocopier, out now on Netflix. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. Hello, welcome to The Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Bernard Butler is a musician, songwriter and radio host. He was also once in a certain British uh, pop group, but we're not going to talk about the past. Hello, Bernard. Thanks for coming to uh, our North London studio. Hi, bike. Yeah, th- but yeah, how else? How, 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 how else, yeah. yes. Um, you're also a broadcaster uh, with the BB <laughs> and King Show on North London's own Boogaloo Radio. Are you going to be reprimanding us for our microphone technique? Absolutely. I'm, I'm just <laughs> looking at the, the technical setup here and just examining it, thinking it's very lo-fi in comparison to the bin shed that is... <laughs> <laughs> out the back of a pub uh, yeah I broadcast it yeah I, I mean I wouldn't call myself anything barely a guitar player uh, getting away with it I think uh, yeah. that's a hell of a twist barely a guitar player uh, yeah. now um, you're a noted Arsenal fan and you and I will have some <laughs> uneasy truce after last night's testy draw in the Liverpool Arsenal game <laughs> I have to ask you about it what's your take on Arteta has he got long is he doing alright do oh I, I don't know I mean I think he's I think he's alright yeah I'm, mm. I'm, I'm very happy with him I think he's an intelligent person I like that like that movement in in football um, I'm more worried about the, the fact that football coach have you noticed how football coaches uh, uh, costumes or their their, their fashion sense mm. is now just on the streets with everybody like so the long zip up puffer coat yes it used to be the something that middle aged men standing at the side of football Sam Allardyce's for example yes. you know would stand there and now everybody's wearing these everywhere you know yeah. how did that happen you look at them and you say <laughs> are you managing a football team are you going to sell me 10 gas lighters for a pound <laughs> <laughs> like, make, please make a decision on your sartorial, your turnout. So I, I like, uh, so I like the the fact that there are some intelligent human beings yes. uh, in football, like Jurgen Klopp, for example. Thank you very and, much, uh, yes. and uh, Mikel Arteta, <laughs> and, and I and I hope they do well. As a producer, obviously, you yourself had to marshal disparate talents into a single creative unit. Mm-hmm. Could you bring these skills to the Emirates if it was required? I mean, who's the unsung <laughs> bass player who need, really needs to get to write more songs? Oh, my God. Um, the funny thing is I did. Uh, I, I do think about this a lot when I'm at football. Um, and I do think about the processes and creative process. It, this is going to sound really pretentious, all of it. And I'm, happy, and I'm happy with that, of course. But, um, but I do think about that an awful lot, about teams and about um, the, the dynamics between people. And it's because a lot of the passion and the sense of disappointment and thrill and the sense of not knowing what's going to happen, the big what if, mm. really translates from what I do in, in, uh, as uh, a musician and what I like about being a musician, what I like about my life, actually, not knowing how things are going to work out, that sense of thrill. I'm, I'm very lucky to have that sense. And that translates really well to watching football mm. if, if you look at it that way. Um, yeah. And it's also a good way of, uh, obviously, you have this ridiculous, absurd sort of rivalries between human beings that are standing 
10 feet away from you (laughs) you know people doing and then you realize that person's going to be you know you're gonna they're gonna come to your show tomorrow night (laughs) you know and you may have to deal with this with a Tottenham shirt on under their jumper exactly or or, you know they're gonna deliver something to your door or something and they're gonna be nice people you know and and, uh, so I like all the contradictions I like the contradictions on the pitch as well and I like the creative um, I like yeah I, I, I look for the creative people the interesting players that I'm interested in so I'm obviously less interested in the uh, the thuggish defenders than I am mm. in the um you, you know, uh, I guess you like uh, the virtuosos and the multi instrument. I, I do. I like the guy. In the, I like the guy in the middle that has the potential to do something unexpected and uh, with a bit of a brain. I mean, I never talk about this with anyone. And I, when I go, I go to football for that reason because I never think of football uh, music at all when I'm there. Yeah, and I can translate all of that nonsense inside me to that thing. Well, there we go. I've just ruined football for Bernard. Uh, we have another guest doing our show. You've made it more exciting for me, though, always. We do. Katie Puckrick is a writer, broadcaster and legend of TV show The Word, of course. Most recently, she's been covering the history of the modern world. Yes, that. Through the portal that is We Didn't Start the Fire, a song by Billy Joel, on her podcast of the same name. Hello, Katie. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Hi. I feel like I now need to get into football because Bernard did such a wonderful pitch. <laughs> of he, he, turned, ha, ha. he turned it... Ha, oh, there you go. He turned it from a, a dunderhead exercise mm. into an egghead endeavor, and I'm all about pretension and eggheadedness. So. Careful, though, Katie. Yeah, just careful how we go with this. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the sports bunker coming on. We could all go to a match. Yeah. I need some fellow Leeds fans. Anyway, never mind about that. We didn't start the fire. Can you tell our listeners who may not be au fait with it what it's all about? Well, it's a hop, skip and a jump through the heroes and villains of the late 21st century through the prism that is the maestro Billy Joel and his 1989 hit song, We Didn't Start the Fire. So you may recall that he does this motor mouth rap Mm -hmm. through Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Makes his way through JFK, through Nixon, through punk rock. Uh, alludes to Cola Wars, which is a, an American advertising phenomenon of the 80s. And so every single week, Tom Fordyce and I mm-hmm. tackle one of the topics. Currently, it's Brigitte Bardot uh, with an expert. Mm. The expert may be uh, in some sort of intellectual. They could be a scholar in the subject. Mm. They could just be a rabid fan. They could be somebody who made a documentary. Uh, we had the guy who made a wonderful documentary on Roy Cohn, for instance. Mm-hmm. We spoke to a man whose grandfather was Joseph Stalin's last bodyguard. And so he wrote a book about a memoir about his... You don't uh, want to be the last bodyguard, do you? You had one job. (laughs) (laughs) He did manage to outlive Stalin. So in other words, it's just a rock'em, sock'em, ramshackle stroll through these fascinating topics in a very conversational way. So check it out. Now, I believe you had a very, very special guest, though, on your show recently. You had Billy Joel himself. Yeah, Billy. How did that happen? Well, uh, it happened. (laughs) We were really not expecting this because we thought, we'll get this little show on the road. There's 120 different episodes because uh, (laughs) his lips are moving quite quickly as he spits (laughs) out these rhymes. And we thought maybe at episode 70 or 90, we would go cap in hand to Billy in Long Island. But in fact, the day after the very first episode dropped, which was the Harry Truman one, we heard from his PR. Mm. who said, Billy loves it. And when can he come on? We're like, 
keen. Uh, and of course, it was right in the height of the pandemic. So I guess uh, his he has a monthly like, you know how musicians have like a monthly gig at the local pub or something. His mm. local pub is Madison Square Garden. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's where he just like has a little standing venue, yeah. a little place to go. Yeah. And that had shut down. So I guess okay. he had time on his hands. Okay. Well, it didn't. For Then he had some sort of song and dance about I can't find my headphones. That's what he said to us. Yeah. So then we thought, oh, okay, reading between the lines. Maybe he's got cold feet. <laughs> anyway, he did show up, and it was delightful. However, I think by the time that we chatted to him in our heads, he was our best friend. You know, when you just invoke, <laughs> like as Billy said, you know, Billy yeah. loves Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> like we're, you know, we just sort of feel like we're all buddies, and of course, yeah. we're completely new and strange to him. So I gave him this big intro. You know, the uh, the Langustine of Long Island. The you know the Bruiser from the Bronx, Billy Joel. And then there was this deathly silence <laughs> in his studio back in Long Island, where he just sort of paused and <clears throat> cleared his throat and. Uh, Oh, I've never had an introduction like that before. So it took him a little while to warm up, but we got there. I don't know why he was so backwards and coming forward, but uh, we did actually make a little news with him, and he confessed. uh, He gave us some stories behind uh, some of the lyrics, including the fact that as a 12-year-old, when a Brigitte Bardot film would come on television, he would like run to the the hall phone because this would have been in the fifties. Uh, call up his little twelve year old mates, and they'd all coordinate to get in front of the like the twelve inch <laughs> screen because there could be a nip slip. You know, it's Brigitte Bardot. We hear she's going to get into a bathtub. Oh, Billy! There could be nipple. Okay. Good Lord. Was that allowed in the fifties? Probably not. <laughs> I shouldn't imagine it was. I don't think it's allowed now. Anyway, before we crack on, a tiny reminder: you can get the Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support the Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture, and much more every day. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Let's start with our special guest, Bonafide Axe Hero and award-winning production <laughs> genius of British music, Bernard Butler. Bernard first came to pronounce with Suede in the early 90s, bringing The Riff back on glam racket smashes like Animal Nitrate and Metal Mickey and the concept album back with Dogman Star. Since then, he's maintained a stacanabite work rate, making Tamla rock and roll hits as 50% of McConnell and Butler, playing with the band Trans and everyone from Amy Mann, The Libertines and The Pretenders to Mark Owen from Take That, mm-hmm. and creating a truly vast production catalogue. He contributed to Duffy's huge album, Rock Ferry, and has produced Frankie and the Heartstrings, Edwin Collins, Paloma Faith, Shamans, Patelli, Tellyman, and many more. This month, Bernard does something not many people have done before. He is re-releasing his debut album, People Move On, from 1998, having re-sung the vocals on every track. And here is one of them. This is the new vocals version of Not Alone from People Move On. Bernard what made you want to redo your debut album and revisit the the heady days of 1998? Well, I, I didn't want to revisit any heady day, and they weren't <laughs> heady days for me, for sure. Um, and I definitely don't like revisiting at mm. all. Um, I didn't like it. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, to a rocker. I just didn't like it. That's all right. Um, Bernard, you're supposed to be plugging the album here. Buy my album that I didn't like. But did you it's... like it back then? Not really. Oh. What, what did you not like about it? I didn't like the way I sang it. I mean, okay. I mean, I just couldn't do it. I didn't know what I was doing. Well, the story of it is, I, I, I was just give, I was just asked to make a record, and I just did it, hmm. and went ahead and spent more and more money, and was allowed to spend as much money as I wanted, and mm. do all sorts of amazing things, and uh, wrote songs which I, I like, but I'd never sung at all, and um, I, I suppose that you know everyone knows that if you grow up in a band and uh, or you're at school, you'll be singing for years and singing dreadful songs or you know in garages yeah. and church halls and stuff and you and you sort of pay your dues in that way and I didn't do that um as a as a musician so when it came to delivering words I didn't really have a clue I didn't really think it through yeah I want to do it and I feel now when I listen back to it that it sounds quite affected that's the thing that comes across to me it's quite affected like I'm trying to assume a delivery which is also okay because I think that's from from Bill Joel to um, to all the greats people do uh, assume a personality yeah. uh, I think that's alright but I just didn't assume I like I didn't assume well I don't think at the time how I got to it this year is because uh, a couple of years ago um, during uh, you know uh, one of the midlife crises I started going to actually just across the road from where we are now right. um, I started going to a, a, a rehearsal room uh, in Holloway on my own on a Wednesday afternoon uh, where no one else was and it's a pretty crap place and it's now closed and I started going there and I and I thought I'm going to go there I'm going to try and find out what I've been doing for 30 years and I'm going to try and put together all the music that um, I've been uh, playing by memory and I got into this idea of, uh, I've read a lot about this as well, the idea of memory and uh, projection and taking parts of, of ideas without going back and reading. So in other words, not going back and listening to songs or listening to lyrics or writing chords down or any of those kind of things and trying to learn things. I was thinking, what is my scattered memory of things yeah. so I can gather my own kind of history of stuff? And a lot of that is to do with the fact that I made, like you say, list off lots of uh, fairly disparate artists I've worked with, you know, that all sound very different, you know, uh, uh, production-wise. Mm. So I thought, what is the thread of all of it? Why am I in it, basically? That was the idea. Yes. What am I doing here? And where am I? You know, what's the point of it? So I thought the most pure way of finding that is, first of all, through the voice, and first and secondly, musically, the most pure element is just a guitar or a piano. So I just chose an electric guitar. So I just spend every Wednesday afternoon for about a year on my own doing that. Yeah. Um, and I'd record it on my phone, and I'd go home, and I'd listen to it, back and I'd think I quite like some of these you know mm. so I started to quite like it again you know because I never listen to anything I do and I don't like listening to anything I do I'm not really interested in it yeah so um it's like looking in the mirror you know or look, looking at pictures of you when you're young or something you're just like oh Christ <laughs> and then you go back and look in the mirror and you're like god I don't know which is worse now that haircut or this one or, you know so um so yeah crises and, and you know so I started liking it again yeah and I started like started thinking well I'm singing this with a singular sort of thread and because I've been doing this for a year now on my own um I'm quite liking the way I'm delivering this suddenly there was a singular sound mm. and it was the sound of a, a tragic middle-aged man um <laughs> so being being whatever I am you know now and whatever I've become just completely coincidentally uh, the demon the reissue company uh, yeah. kept asking me will you reissue this and I said right okay stop asking me I've got an idea <laughs> and will you let me do it if I re-sing it and they just said alright so and here I am 
did you find because this was very much your this is me record stepping out from you know you'd done you'd done Swede, you'd done McCormick and mm. Butler you'd done a lot of production but it's extremely personal and you know, people move on as a statement as well as an exhortation mm. people change you know you become a different person did it feel strange to sing the things that you'd been thinking in 1997 did you think who is this guy well, he, yeah, he's I mean, going through a lot you, you just project it in a different way mm. that's, the, that's the interesting thing you just suddenly like well so songs are never about anything that's a lie when we say that this song was written about this you know yeah. like mm. you guys will mm. ask somebody like me what's that song about and of course I'll tell you a story and mm. it's not true mm. because all mm. songs are are scattered ideas and connected with a with the present and with a memory and with an idea yeah. and that context changes you know over time and in the same way if I listen to songs now I just think well I, I don't really know what that was about and also I can change lyrics I could do that yeah. you know I thought I, d- I can't remember this so I'll write something good you know now that means something mm. now so I did a bit of that um, and you're just sort of projecting yourself and by having a different voice, different tone, just by being lived in a little bit, you project something different onto the words. I think this record was quite sentimental and quite emotional drive to it when I was young because a lot of emotional stuff happened to me in my 20s when I was young. Yeah. Um, like a bit of a roller coaster and a car crash. Can you crash a car on a roller coaster? Oh, that would be very if, dangerous. If I had, I probably, <laughs> yeah. probably, probably yeah. it's probably actually quite true to what happened mm. to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't. There weren't times I enjoyed, yeah. um, and I've enjoyed getting older a lot more. And um, but they were so very emotionally charged. And at the time, I think I, even I viewed it as quite too emotional. Um, and now I kind of view it as like, well, that's that's those are quite good things, mm. um, and they're quite they're easier to talk about. So the context of um, uh, there's a lot of references to introversion and uh, cocooning and being uh, solitariness. Fragility, stuff like that, which at the time of uh, the heady days of Britpop was just a little <laughs> bit like, on your bike, mate. Yeah. That's uh, what? what? Yeah. You know, it wasn't allowed We're at all. We're all supposed to be partying down the Met Park. We were yeah, partying, yeah. and I wasn't, I was hiding, yeah. you know, uh, behind the sofa pretty much. So, and I think those things are all right now. Yeah. You know, they're okay to talk about. So I'm all right going back to it, going oh. back to it now, I think, oh, that was, that was all right after all, a lot of it. I don't like all of it. Yeah. You're one of the standout great British guitarist of the, of, the, of the past 30 years. Can you remember when you first started to play? Were, were there tennis racket years before you actually kind of <laughs> took um, it up for I real? I played the violin for about five years when I was quite young, uh, from about seven to 14. This is the story you, you, you'll, you'll want and you won't believe, but it's just true. I, I, I was listening to John Peel's uh, show as my brother used to play at night before we went to bed and I heard uh, The Smiths mm. and uh, I heard Reel Around the Fountain my brothers bought a guitar cheap off their mate and uh, and they gave it to me and they said, here, you learn this because you know about music because uh, <laughs> I play violin and then teach us so that we can sort of... Uh, and, and, of course, I never gave it back. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that's it. And I, and, and I just learned to play records. Yeah. So that's all I did. I, all the records, you know, and I was blessed at that time. It was amazing times. People talk about the golden periods of the 60s and all those kind of things, but that, that didn't interest me growing up in the 80s. Mm. I had... Johnny Marr, Bernard Sumner, Edwin Collins, Robin Guthrie, uh, Will Sargent, Roddy Frame. I mean, there was just a whole host of extraordinary yeah. musicians, incredibly characterful. And uh, that was all I listened to. I didn't listen to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and any of that stuff. Mm. Nothing before 1983. 
because you wouldn't when you were growing up at that time. Mm. It wasn't cool. Well, actually, yeah. also, you, know? you couldn't find it because buying old records was not yet possible, was it? Mm. Unless you went digging around record fairs. My big brother, he did all the music for me. He brought all the records into the house. And he also bring, brought in things that are really key. He also brought in Miles Davis, which uh, sketches of Spain mm. really uh, it's really important. It always has mm. been. And because gluing that together with Aztec camera or something, yeah. I think uh, uh, paints a bigger picture mm. of what of what happened, mm. you know, uh, how... I don't know how vast your knowledge can become, you know, and uh, and this is growing up in you know suburban London as well, where everything's just a bit, you know, you don't see anything um, interesting. So Try growing up in suburban, not London, it's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a moment you can remember when you thought you realised I'm actually quite good at this? When you cracked something, playing along to records, and you know uh, I actually am. I mean- um, I I I worked out, I I worked out how to learn stuff. So I'd get a record and I'd take it home and I'd listen to it. And those records came out all the time. Smith's records just came out all the time. You'd yeah. buy it after school, bring it home. I'd listen to it, think, cool, mm. let's get down to it and, and learn it. You know, that was the the number one priority for me to make sure I knew it. And then you'd watch the whistle test and the tube and stuff, and you'd uh, video it. And and, and I just watch people's hands. So yeah. I just I just have just sit and watch. Where's your hand? Mm. What mm. are you doing there? Mm. And and I'd learn how to do it, and that's how I learned. That's how I learned how to play. And my brother as well, Stephen. Again, he was so he was a master um, live bootlegger, and because yeah. uh, oh, so, that yeah. was the thing. I remember going to Electric Ballroom to buy tapes of the Smiths live at wherever you could find them, mm. and it's probably yeah, it's from a, your brother. <laughs> well, Stephen used to run a yeah a few stores in Camden, and I used to work on them uh, sometimes with mm. him. But he'd basically go off into the night. Um, on National Express coaches and wow. um, That's where and, and Tape the Smiths yeah. and all the, all those shows on the Queen is Dead tour. Yeah, yeah. New Order is very very big on New Order, um, and the beauty of that was particularly New Order actually was that New Order improvised famously because their gear broke down all the time and stuff yeah. but they improvised an awful lot around what they did and left the sequences running for 10 minutes whilst they played and they made up songs mm. and that was a big inspiration for me because you'd get these tapes and uh, you'd hear mm. people live working stuff out and creating and improvising and uh, things would be different every night I remember that actually I remember the people jazz that element to yeah. the new order which does get over great musicians like they'll always underplay yeah. their musicianship yeah, yeah. but yeah. you have to be good to be able to pull that off and you have to have some guts to stand mm. up up and, mm. and do that night after night and like okay I'm going to make up a lyric and yeah that's pretty crap but actually some of those <laughs> ended up you know uh, you, yeah, you have to be pretty yeah. pretty great and I was hugely inspired by uh, by New Order still am you know so Stephen used to bring these tapes home um, in the middle of the night and and so that that's really where I learn I'd listen yeah. to tape these tapes also, Johnny's work. It was um, the Smiths was very multi-layered, but mm. on stage it was one guitar. That was a huge. That was the big thing about Suede, really, where that sound developed. Yeah. Because I thought, hang on, you do all this stuff on the record, but when you do it live, you mm. just do it with one guitar. How do you do that? Mm. I need to know how to do that, and I developed that into what I did in the studio. Uh, so that that became a sort of a, the, what I, what I tried to get yeah. to grips with, yeah. As a producer, you are very much not of the sit in the control room and say play it faster but slower style, are you? You get involved. Sometimes you end up joining the band. As a job, I mean, the, the producers I've talked to, they all say it's like it's psychology. You are effectively trying to connect with the person that you're producing and dig things out of them. Do you have kind of ways of connecting with people? You know, to cut out that 
three to six months period of making friends that I mean, you would ignore. I, I really hate the, 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 when people bring up the idea of producers creating tensions deliberately and that's yeah. how you get the best out of people. It's not true. It's not true to, and it's not a good idea to work particularly with young people in that way. Mm. And it, I was treated in that way and I really resent that and I've always made it a point to never work in that way with young yeah. people. The people who are most inspiring to me, the people who, who gave me trust and said, you can do this rather than try to reflect uh, tension. Yeah. So um, the psychology of it, it's just like doing this. It's uh, We arrive, we have a cup of tea, we start talking about what's going on and we talk about stuff. We talk about mm-hmm. films, watching or books and stuff like that. You know, and, and, you, and, and generally whenever I work with somebody, I'll get to know somebody in that way very quickly. Say, where, where, you know, how did you get here today on your bike? What happened? And it's always some arseholes, you know, tried to <laughs> knock you off or, or, you know, the tube, when, somebody went under on the tube, you know, and, and I just write and I just sit there and I'm thinking song, 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 you know, mm. because there's lyrics everywhere. And, and then when people say, well, I don't know what to write about. And I'm mm. like, well, look at what you've told me about your life yeah. today. Yeah. You know, everything is happening and you're just telling me and I'm a stranger mm. and mm. we're going to be strangers again. And mm. I like that. I always like that we're going to be strangers. We're not doing it to, you know, be friends have yeah. dinner, play mm. golf. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're there to do a thing. Mm. I've got my, I've got my family. I've got my own mates. You know. But yeah. when I do this, I like the fact you meet a complete stranger, and mm. these things, these weird kind of affairs happen. You know, in musical things, and uh, you share all sorts of uh, very deep bonds, and then you just go. Yeah. Mm. You like have that. had frequent flyers though. Like you made a couple of records with Charlene Spiteri from Texas. Yeah. Who, who have you clicked with fastest and best? You clearly clicked with her. Uh, Charlene's great. Everyone loves Charlene. She's just, uh, uh, yeah, she's great. Mm. Uh, who, who? I don't know. I, I've worked with uh, hundreds of people I, I love, um, and I do keep in touch with. Or you know, I do keep in touch with. I say that, but I don't expect to. I think mm. my expectation isn't that's what we're there to do. You know, to to be big mates. I mean, I currently lo- in love with Sam Lee because uh, we've become friends and I, and I love what he is and I love what he's doing for the world, you know, and it blows my mind some of the stuff he gets up to and I'm just like, I'm such a poor human being compared to what you're achieving and uh, well, we're gonna be playing uh, changing yourself to, to roads and all sorts of stuff and mm. like for my benefit. It's, mm. So I love, I love talking to Sam and I find him hugely inspiring being around him. Now, digging through all the... Dozens, scores, hundreds of records you've made. I found repeated reference to he made a record with Roy Orbison, which unless you've got a time machine, Bernard, is a real trick. Which track is this? What's it called? You may feel me crying. Oh. Um, what happened is it's um, so this is uh, yeah. I, I am on a Bri- uh, Roy Orbison record. Brian Eno was asked by Barbara Orbison, Roy Orbison's mm. wife, to um, go through songs that he left behind after he died and um, assemble a band around it. And he recorded all these songs just with a, a click track and a, and a sort of cheesy keyboard, and, but him singing, and his voice was beautiful. Brian Eno assembled a band um, to record a live track around these songs, and one of them uh, featured me, yeah. And so, so I was put in a room with Brian Eno, making jokes about the singer being dead while his wife was <laughs> in the control room and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's producer tension. <laughs> yeah, um, but she was there. Yeah, Barbara is there. I remember I was quite young then, and um, I remember Barbara Upson being there. I play a red guitar, big red semi-acoustic Gibson, yeah. uh, which I'm very well aware of is famous for. Um, Roy Orbison played a, also a big red, cherry red. Uh, Gibson semi-acoustic 
when I was young, I, I, I was convinced my dad could be Roy Orbison or could have been. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I was really, you know, do you ever have that when you, you know, because uh, he had the, the brilliant quiff mm. and uh, pair of Ray Bans and stuff, and and I just thought, what if you know, that, that, that could have happened? And yeah. so I always had a bit of a, a sort of a thing about Roy Orbison. Yeah. Um, anyway, when I met uh, when I was there at the studio, and Barbara did, yeah, she remember she said, my husband's got had one of those guitars, and I'm like. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, I, I think I know that. Yeah, I've seen that. And she was just looking at the guitar and I was like, oh, okay, time to go now. And it was nice. I believe you made a record with Altered Images. Tell us about this. How did this happen? Because I mean, that is that's uh, Claire, real pop music. Yeah, Claire lives on my road. Mm. So <laughs> we're neighbours and um, she, she has been forever, you know, for a long time. But yeah, it's got around to wanting to make another record and said, oh, we should do some writing and we wrote a song. And it, it evolved during that time. She's written with Charlene as well and a few yeah. other people, Bobby Bluebell. Um, and uh, we wrote a couple of songs and it's become an Altered Images record. I love Altered Images. I loved Claire. I love Altered Images. I loved Gregory's Girl. It's one of those mm. yeah. young men who grew up with Gregory's Girl. I think it's the greatest thing ever mm. and that um, that story. And always love Claire. And I always think they made really fantastic records, particularly their last record, Bites, which I think is a fantastic pop record. Yeah. And I love Claire. She's just great. And mm. Steve, they're just lovely people so yeah we live on it yes and this yeah, is easy. coming out shortly then is it uh, i don't know when it's uh, quite soon i've written two songs with claire yeah. and uh yeah okay, okay. it's right. good super pop is very nice well, yeah. before we move on we've got a track from uh that sam lee record that you produced recently uh this is the garden of england open brackets seeds of love close brackets it is a little bit Bert Yanchi, and you are a patron of the Bert Yanchi Foundation, aren't you? Tell, I am. Tell us about this record. Uh, well, Sam, I was uh, I knew for quite a long time, and I sort of did some near misses with him, and we kept meeting. Mm. Um, and I think Sam, we had a sort of connection, and he was he's quite wary of the the folk tradition of um, Aaron Jumpers and finger picking guitar mm. and, and stuff like that. Quite rightly, um, even though he's a guardian of folk song, um, but it's his way of interpreting what that is in the modern world. Uh, so he came came to me and said, well, look, we've put all these songs together and said, do you want to record it? But I don't think it's going to be, I want guitar. And I was like, this is great. I'm absolutely, I love that. Mm. Uh, people saying that to me. Um, and uh, I did end up playing a bit of guitar on it. Um, <laughs> but it. it was a really beautiful thing. He's, he was, we're really extraordinary musicians. We sat in Sam's front room for a few weeks with no microphones, just planning arrangements uh, of these songs and their interpretations of, of songs which Sam has finished in some ways. Mm-hmm. During this process, one of the songs, The Moon Shines Bright, had written, scored at the bottom, um, Elizabeth Fraser, question mark. And I just said, <laughs> what's that? You know when he says Elizabeth, he says, yeah, yeah. oh, oh, that's my friend Elizabeth. Do you know her? And I said, uh, "Is what you mean Elizabeth Fraser from the Cotto Twins? Mm. He said, oh, yeah, do you, do you, I don't know them well. Do you, and, I said, and I said, have you heard of them? Yeah, I know Elizabeth Fraser from the Cotto Twins. Oh, well, I don't know her actually, what you know. And he said, mm. oh, she came to see me and she's really nice. Should we get her to sing? And I was like, uh, yeah, let's, let's do that, Sam. Yeah, let's, do, let's do that, Sam. Yeah. So uh, one of my favourite moments Amazing. is, is um, uh, we, we, um, halfway through um, recording or towards the end, and this it was on off whether Elizabeth was going to do this or not. Uh, sing a verse in the Moonshine's yeah. Bright. I'd been out of an evening uh, with my wife and uh, had a couple of uh, a couple of refreshments and came home on a Friday night and got this email from Elizabeth with her voice and I just, wow. I just half drunk put it on and I was like oh my. 
Lord, I'm listening to this just, yeah. and it's beautiful. And then she yeah. phoned me really late at night and said, you know, just delete it, it's rubbish. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk to Sam about it. I'm like, of course I'm not going to delete it. What you mean? <laughs> Crazy lady. Oh, and uh, Anyway, yes, yeah, so we recorded Elizabeth Fraser. And it was a really beautiful experience. I love Sam. I, the musicianship is just, ext- I, I love being around people where I'm just in awe, you know, and I was just in awe of the bass player. Uh, and it sounds, it, it, maybe it, to other people it just doesn't, register but that, that's uh, I just watch people and think you're so great and it inspires me and you're so talented and I want to buy you <laughs> uh, you know I want to keep you under my bed or something yes. and uh, and so um, it was that experience with Sam and I'm hoping to uh, do another record with him now well let's have a listen to this track from that album this is The Garden of England Seeds of Love by Sam Lee for they must be bound to be free light working the liminal listening to the land and fingering at mystery, mystery. Not Sally, free and easy. Oh, grief, oh, grief, why? The songs they go. Right, let's talk about TV and art. Andy Warhol's America is now on the BBC on iPlayer. It's a three-parter exploring the artist's beginnings in Pittsburgh, his illustration career onto his early screen prints and everything you probably know already. What does the tale of the man who made pop art popular land in the post-post-post-postmodern world of 2022? What new things do we learn? Let's listen to the trailer. Real art. Campbell's soup, Marilyn Monroe, all the things that he saw as in America. He loved beauty, he loved fame. That's beautiful. But he also portrayed the American dream turned nightmare. Andy Warhol's art shows the violence, the utter disdain for human life in the United States. Andy was really both glorifying and critiquing American culture and the whole American system. Director Francis Watley also gave us David Bowie, Finding Fame, and Bowie, Five Years. Also, Dolly Parton documentaries and many more music documentaries. Do we really need to delve into the social context behind Andy Warhol and his time? Katie? Oh, I think we absolutely need to delve into the context of Andy Warhol because he predicted everything that's happening right now. I mean, he predicted people Mm -hmm. as brands himself as a brand, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, Mao Zedong. He predicted influencers with the mm-hmm. superstars that he cultivated, absolutely ordinary people who were just lurking around the silver factory mm-hmm. as he was making his silk screen prints and he turned the camera on them and turned them into uh, quote unquote stars. He invented reality TV with a screen test, whether it was Dennis Hopper or Bob Dylan dropping by the factory, he'd train a camera on them and just let them be who they were going to be. Uh, the fetishization of fame uh, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 mm-hmm. minutes. Uh, pocket technology, his whole thing was to, if he wasn't photographing or filming everything, he took his little portable uh, tape recorder with him to every glitzy party, to Studio 54, mm. to meeting the Shah of Iran, hanging out with Bianca and Jerry, and he called his tape recorder his wife. So he <laughs> he himself felt that he was not interesting enough or he wasn't 
interested in himself. He was interested in everybody else. So that whole idea of recording everything around you um, and then blurring the lines between advertising and entertainment, mm -hmm. which is what he did, and also blurring the lines between business and art. And he called uh, his magazine, Interview Magazine, Business Art, and he called getting commissions to do portraits for the great, the good, the beautiful, and the oligarchs and the war criminals. He called that business art because he felt that making money was art. Mm. So what does this program do? Who do we have, for instance, as the talking heads? And what do they reveal that we wouldn't already know? Because obviously Andy Warhol is someone that we are familiar with. Yeah, so we're familiar with uh, the image that he portrayed of himself and that he allowed. And he was definitely controlling that image. Mm -hmm. So he was somebody who had... Uh, kind of poor health. He had terrible skin. I think he had a little bit of a nose job, or at least he had his nose sanded. He had it sanded. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of Before like... Before they really knew how to do nose micro, jobs. Yeah, 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 microdermabrasion. So he, he was very self-conscious about his nose, and then he was losing his hair, and then he decided he was the master of turning uh, limitations into strengths. Mm -hmm. So he felt that, you know, he wasn't the greatest draftsman, so that's why he turned, you know, he did beautiful um, drawings of shoes and also penises. Uh, maybe there's a little cross <laughs> Over with both of those shapes. Hmm. But uh, that's why he ended up working with silkscreen because it was something that could be endlessly reproduced. And so mm -hmm. also with his hair, hair wasn't really there. So then he decided, okay, I'm just going to get a series of gray mops uh, and I will look the same for the rest of my life. So in answer to your question, he very much controlled his image. But what we get from this documentary are people who worked with him. So mm -hmm. Bob Colicella, who uh, edited Interview Magazine early on and was an intimate of his, Gerard Malanga, mm -hmm. who was uh, the whip cracker in the uh, exploding plastic inevitable mm -hmm. that the Velvet Underground were a part of. And then he ended up being Warhol's first assistant making uh, the silkscreen prints and was a poet as well. Um, you have Jane Holzer, who was a dilettante rich lady. She was known as Baby Jane Holzer at the time. Mm -hmm. So these are all intimates who worked with him, who were able to say, uh, these are his vulnerabilities. He acted like he was uh, completely starstruck and shy. Like there was a, mm, a, mm. a funny clip that showed him on the Merv Griffey yes. show with Edie Sedgwick where he's whispering into Edie Sedgwick's ear yeah. every time Merv has a question. And that's something that someone like Prince used to do in his mm, later years mm. when he was going through his slave years. So you see somebody, what you learn is somebody who is so clever and subtle at manipulating pop culture. So mm. so he understands that people, especially in the 60s, are getting used to this idea of consumption and ease. You know, everybody can have a, a bowl of a piping hot Campbell soup, mm -hmm. you know, just by, you know, reaching into the cupboard and pulling mm. one of any, you know, 25 different flavors. But he was an expert at taking this commodification of culture and then putting his own spin on it. Mm -hmm. Bernard. Before the show, we talked about context on this, and mm. you said you really enjoyed it. But has it got enough context about some of the pop artists around at the time? Because here we are, have Andy Warhol invented everything, mm. <laughs> and it's all his idea. But what did you think in terms of social history, but also art history? Well, I think the social history was uh, the, the biggest part of it, and Andy Warhol's America mm. being important. And I think I like the fact that he didn't mention the Velvet Underground until halfway through the second mm -hmm. episode, which is quite rare with anything that everything tends to be focused on the factory and nothing around it mm. and so I, and I also liked that I liked hearing about his, his him growing up and what happened in the, in the 70s as well uh, but I, yeah there is a, a little bit of a gap of what his inspirations were mm -hmm. 
rather than is the sense is that everything was taken from the culture of the time and, and he absorbed everything mm. around him and that was it um, and it, do, it doesn't focus at all really as you say on, on the other pop artists there was a, actually a really great film uh, a few weeks ago about surrealism by oh, Philippa Perry that's right yeah mm-hmm. I was just trying to remember yeah mm-hmm. and, and that was really great and, and that did talk about the, um, the surrealist going to New York and the crossover and Jackson Pollock and mm. how that became uh, modernism actually mm-hmm. and because of why they ended up in New York and, uh, and getting away from the horrors of Germany there's, I think there's a thread there which mm. is quite interesting mm. in, in that he didn't maybe invent everything <laughs> but you know that's alright because uh, I think the idea of being a sponge and um, absorbing everything around you yes. uh, is, is powerful enough with Warhol Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. as a film again, it's it's that idea of a projection. It's pro- yeah. a film is a project is projecting an idea of, of an artist, and the artist is projecting an idea of his times and uh, the culture around mm. him. And so it goes on and on. It's like Russian dolls, you know, mm. one in, mm. inside of another. And I guess it's whose truth you believe, or, or 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 is it just a sense of what do we what do we enjoy? And the films were brilliantly done. Mm. For a start, just like yeah, the five, so beautifully done. Yeah, yeah, I thought that the interviews of Gerard Malanga were—he's uh, brilliant. Yeah, he was brilliant then, and he's still just quite <laughs> animated. Andrew, no one's mentioned Jerry Hall yet. Yeah, Jerry Hall. Uh, Wait, why? Do, why is that important to Andrew? I, I don't know. Why is it important to me? It's important to the discussion. It's your turn next. Andrew. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, Jerry Hall. She adds insight. I'd like to. I'd like to add. Uh, mention Jerry Hall. This, mm. There's a funny little detail in Bob Colicella's. Uh, book about Warhol, uh, where he talks about the fact that there was this crossover between uh, when Mick Jagger was going out, was married to Bianca, and then he started going out with, uh, with Jerry. And both women thought that "Miss You" was about them, so they right. drop by the factory and go, "Oh, you know, you know, you know, Mick's new song. It's about, it's about me." It's like, <laughs> I don't know. It might not be about either of you, <laughs> ladies. Exactly. I enjoyed this. Ben's right about the, the the social context is is kind of the is the thing that drives yeah. it. Yeah. What I liked about it was it wasn't entirely uncritical. Um, you do meet people who were quite seriously damaged by their time at the factory, mm-hmm. or who knew people who were seriously damaged and didn't survive. The breakdown of it into the, the three episodes, effectively, episode one is, is pop art and the rise and how he, go, he goes from Pittsburgh to being a sought after, very, very highly paid illustrator. Yeah, yeah. Part grand two is, in a yeah, year. Part two is the factory in the Velvet yeah. Underground. And part three is how the, the sort of late period mm-hmm. kind of dissolution mm-hmm. into, you know, essentially it is all just about the money. What it highlighted was, I mean, obviously, Warhol achieved some amazing things, but he also... In, uh, kind of institutionalized this idea that what the art world is about is celebrating meaninglessness. Mm. And we see a lot of art crowd party footage yes. of people who at some removal look rather ridiculous uh, talking about the, you know, about the wonders of the emptiness of Warhol and how great mm. it is. Obviously, that was a, a moment that art was going through at the time. But I think he kind of, he inst- what he did helped to institutionalize some of the worst aspects of the art world. A the Jeff Koonsiness. The Jeff Koonsiness. Oh, my goodness. goodness. Yeah. And also the, the fact that he had uh, the electric chair. He, had, he took a photo of the electric mm. chair that the Rosenbergs were mm-hmm. electrocuted yeah. mm-hmm. in, turned it into beautifully colorized uh, silk screens, baby pink, mm. you know, light blue, lemon yellow. And you, there's actual wonderful clips, archive clips of people at shows going, oh, that one's so pretty, the, you know, the pink electric chair, absolutely punk rock. And then he's mm, asked, mm. you know, why did you do this? Why did you choose such a provocative image? And he just says, oh, it, it's just it's just beautiful. I just but, think we, it's but we don't see at, at no point do the art world uh, kind of hangers on and critics say, why is it beautiful, Andy? 
He's, and he is uh, he's expert at deflecting mm. any kind of interrogation. You can't sort of imagine a future in which that subculture didn't emerge. It was going to happen. It was going to be driven by Warholism. But it has given us mm. what the art world is now, which is kind of a, a self-replicating little bubble that doesn't really have much to say about real life. That particular part of it. It has Larry Gagosian in here. And mm. the good thing is they skirt over the the fact that his pieces cost a lot of money because it is it's a meaningless it doesn't you know mm. it's not here for the documentary is not about art and commerce in mm. that sense and mm. what these things are meant now i enjoyed that bit mm. but yeah i mean it's hard to imagine a world where warhol didn't exist i don't think that you can I wanted a bit more, well, here's Cindy Sherman and here is Jeff Koons and what they are taking from it. And I wanted a bit more of the modern context of how art now couldn't exist in the way that it does, I not think, just in a commerce way. I think that's probably think, a different documentary. Well, maybe, I, I think, maybe. And I'd like to make it. <laughs> it, feels like it. It feels like that's dropped in the last five minutes yeah. of episode three. Just, yeah. oh, and by the way, this, and it goes back to the Burger There's King There's a advert. montage, isn't there? Yeah. A big brother and, you yeah. know, all those Yeah, exactly. Things. Yeah, but that kind of happens in the last five minutes. Yeah. And so this is what you've been doing for three hours mm. <laughs> right, right. scrolling oh, yeah. your phone probably and you <laughs> referenced Bernard the Burger King advert which was yes. uh, just actually a, it was turned into a Burger King ad but it was just him very slowly mm. in real time unwrapping fast food mm. at hamburger from Burger King and mm. eating it complete with ASMR sound effects the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the crinkle of the paper and yeah. the chewing I mean he even mm. he invented ASMR yeah, maybe he did, but it's all consumed in the end by mm. business. It's all consumed by capitalism. That—that that is what I found. Kind I of found it, remi- it reminds me how. Art. Oh, it reminded me though of how shocking he can be, yeah. and actually how edgy and the um, electric chair stuff. But there was one. You know, there was a couple a, of moments a, a where there were difficult image. people who there were people who were protesting mm. in a way. There were the lady who was not impressed by the mm. race riots mm. um, yes. scenes, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and quite rightly, yeah. She, yeah. to me, yeah, yeah. there was a, there was an awful lot of fawning art people being uh, how, how wonderful to saying all the things mm. that I knew already yes. yeah. and there was a few moments where people said actually you know what he's yeah. making money out of that yeah. mm. and do I care about his art mm. when he's making money and I think that's completely yeah, justified a, point. a yeah. point that I don't that was kind of dropped in and it was a little bit shocking but then yeah. uh, pushed over a little bit the other one was um, so Wilhelmina um, the story oh, of, yes. of, of uh, oh, him that's very her, tragic isn't which it? is really tragic yeah. and but you know what there was a, probably a hell of a lot of tragic stories yeah. there were a lot Lots of bodies, by the way, damaged people. A lot of damaged people, including him. And it does sort of gloss over that as well, the the idea that he did revel over. But then maybe that's a different documentary. That's what we're saying. We would broadly recommend. Yeah, Yeah. it's worth watching. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As regular listeners know, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite tune. Katie Puckrick, you're not getting out of this one. What have you chosen and why have you chosen it? There's somebody who's come on my radar recently, Neil Francis. Mm. Uh, He's from Chicago. He's a piano player. Uh, he plays very 70s style piano rock, kind of hints of the kinks and Elton is in there. He actually reminds me of Nicky Hopkins, who was ah. the big session pianist who played on all the classic kinks and Rolling Stones albums in the 60s and 70s. Neil Francis's album is called In Plain Sight, and I find it very reminiscent of Hopkins' 1973 LP, The Tin Man Was a Dreamer, because it's very idiosyncratic and ramshackly, lots of personality, very melodic. So the song of Neil Francis's that I've picked from In Plain Sight is called Alameda Apartments. And as much as it hurts, it remains to this day that I love her. And it stays just the same. And people ask if it hurts. But it's too so long. And then we And as much as it hurts, it remains to this day that I love her. And that stays just the same. 
Now, this time last year, we were marvelling at what a good actor that young man Ollie Alexander was in Russell T. Davis's It's a Sin. He used to be the frontman of the band years and years. Now he's the sole owner-operator of that act. And their third album, Night Call, his first as a solo artist, is out next Friday. Unfortunately, this being a major release, we can't clear tracks to play on the podcast, but we're going to drop the single Sweet Talker into the rolling playlist. Katie, you started your pop career under the tutelage of the Pet Shop Boys as a dancer on the performance tour in the early 90s. Ollie is also under the tutelage of the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> he made a record, he made a dream. In yeah. fact, Bernard did Burning the Heather with the Pet Shop Boys. I think we're on the same record. They, it's on mm. the same record. It's a we hot may spot. Be. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's all coming together. <laughs> what did you think of, uh, of the Years and Years album? Well, it's not my bag. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's just so heavily processed. The vocals, the, the sound so deeply compressed. The whole thing is like a pop music panini. It's just kind of smushed. <laughs> it's delicious and smushed mm. and probably very bad for you. Um, it is like a blend of Justin Timberlake and Kylie, but less good than that suggests. Uh, just not my bag. But mm. the thing that I find very enchanting is that Ollie Alexander is just so good at being a pop star. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's so happy to be there. He's not trying to do some sort of begrudging mystery persona stance. He is just a show poodle, loud and proud. And so I love that about him. You know, really good at what he does. It's just I find that it was just a symposium of of cliches. It's just kind of like sort of 80 sounds, 90 sounds. It's like all your favorite sounds mm-hmm. just kind of run through at top speed. So it's almost like, hey, what was happening in pop music from 1980 to 2021? I don't know. Listen to this album and find out. You've listed all the reasons I liked it, actually. And you're right. He is <laughs> he is a very good pop star. Mm-hmm. He actually looks like a pop star, which not very many people do these days. You know, and the, the cover illustration of this where he's a man is particularly mm-hmm. uh, hilarious, I thought. Yeah. Um, he says it's a hookup record. Uh, I put all the kind of stuff I was missing, like going out, dancing and having sex. I put it all into the record. Well, I don't know about the sex stuff. I mean, it's kind of a tsunami of sameness because it's just mm. so like relentlessly, you know, bam, 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 upbeat, upbeat, like not not exploding with, with tunes, but mm. more like sounds, a collection of um, easy to digest sounds. Bernard, I mean, you're, you've never really done the big electronics panoply thing, have you? You've always been based in like physical instruments kind of thing. What's your position on the uh, the years and years thing? Um, I've, I kind of agree with Katie, actually, and I wish it was more blatantly about sex and hookups mm. because I felt it was just really, if that's what his story it is, just full of uh, lyrical cliche quite bland cliches mm. which are quite average um i think it's a really good tune yeah. uh, i really love the string part in it you know it's quite uplifting but i just want it to be more daring yeah. you know and i think him him as a person he's uh he, he has the position as a as a pop star he, he's he's pretty they're pretty big now to do something pretty daring and to experiment and to use that platform and i find it really uh i just find it really annoying when somebody's got that platform and just produces a spotify two minutes 56 song that starts at the start and and it ends as no fade. There's just nothing experimental about it. And you have to look at Pet Shop Boys when oh. they had their moment at that time when they were biggest pop stars and the world. They were absolutely doing extraordinary things. I don't think it was the tour that I saw you on, but I definitely saw several dates on the tour where It's a Sin was being uh, performed and Neil would be carried on as a dressed as a cardinal. Yes. Um, mm, by, mm. Was that your time? No, no, no. Was we just were before. all schoolboys. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> we were praying and masturbating at the same time. Oh, good, and, on, good for you, yeah. yeah. And, you know, but those people. <laughs> People, uh, Neil and Chris, are, you know, fantastic. Were fantastic pop stars for that reason because they experimented and they used the pla- used the platform, but with joyous melodic mm. music that hit the mainstream. Mm. And they knew it still hit people, yeah. and uh, I don't think. And I wish that that uh, this guy did this on yeah. this. I would love him to do it, but it's not. It's a bit bland. For Maybe me. the two of you need to get together.
together, Bernard. He yeah. wouldn't listen to me. Tough love. He wouldn't listen. Tough love. <laughs> yeah. Sean, what did you think? There's some quite good writing to the title here, 20 minutes, about how a quick hookup can change your life and you can actually fall in love with somebody after 20 minutes. Or look at all that muscle getting me into trouble. What did you think of it? <laughs> it's, it's very much the nephew of the Scissor Sisters, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. He's taking that bat on. And also, he is Kylie. I mean, Kylie mm. is one of the heroes and they've worked together before, but mm-hmm. that's what he's doing. It's, it's similar to disco in that sense that you can tell this is a locked up person who really really needs to get out to the club and I loved it for that I put it on in the morning and Consequences uh, the first track on it is an absolute banger Mm. but Bernard is very right in song structure you know when you've listened to the first 20 seconds you know how the rest of the song is going to go it is first chorus first chorus middle eight Mm. I, I want to hear the mistakes. If he's talking about mistakes in his life and, mm. and being a human being, so they I need to, to be musically. I want to hear that musically, mm. and I don't. I Reflected. hear something that's that's I could knock up in logic right now in about forty-five seconds. But I have a massive fondness for him. I'm also mm. glad he's still alive after it's a sim because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> part of me it's not real, you know. <laughs> I know, you know that point where oh, oh yeah, he's such a gorgeous person. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you know that he is just all good. I right, I think yeah, but. Of an edge to it, a bit of some rougher edge. Keep edges. at it, mm. be a bit weirder. <laughs> yeah. Be a bit weirder, well, but he is rather lovely, he is. Ollie. Bernard Butler, it's your turn to share your current favourite tune with us. What have you chosen and why? I've chosen The Weather Station, which is an mm. album from last year, uh, and a song called Rubber. Yeah. It could be it could have been many uh, songs in this album. I really love this record. Um, I really love the record before this as well by The Weather Station, which I've discovered in the last few years. Uh, it's a lady called Tamara Linderman. It's an un- awkward, uh, awkward record that sounds really beautiful. So somebody who's expressing some quite awkward ideas about modern life and her modern life, mm. and uh, but with uh, in a really beautiful, uh, with emotional context. Uh, I I like it. That's all. <laughs> my, I always think of my mum listening to music and think, turn it up, turn it off. That's, that's all, all the stuff we're saying is yeah. brilliant, but you turn it up or you turn it off. <laughs> I'll turn it up. Here it is. This is the weather station with Robert. <laughs> But the robber never believed in you You were two halves of the same piece Divided into two Now the robber don't hate you Finally, copy that. In a new psychological thriller from Indonesia, photocopier, student Sarani goes for a big night out in Jakarta to celebrate with her theatre group friends. But when a drunken selfie appears online, it costs her a scholarship and a whole lot more. We're going to listen to the trailer. Of course it's not in English, but it will give you a bit of atmosphere. Here's photocopier. Kamu ini kerap acap kali atau gemar pergi ke diskotik? Tak berkelakuan baik maksudnya apa? Tapi suruh berhak merayakan kemenangan suruh, Pak. Biasiswa lu hilang, Tong. Karena kelakuan lu yang gak baik. Gue mesti cari bukti kalau gue dikerjain. Gue mau nyolong data dari HP anak-anak. 
Mungkin gak ya kak? Kalau minuman saya dikasih obat. The film had its world premiere at the 26th Busan International Film Festival and it scooped many, 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 many awards before it came to Netflix. Andrew Harrison, what did you think of this? I thought it was really good. Mm. I was really fascinated by it. I like the fact that uh, Netflix is basically shoving an art house cinema into your telly yes. and making things available that uh, otherwise are very, very hard to get to see, mm. particularly mm. if you're not in Ponzi London like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, it is incredibly vivid. It is a, a very powerful evocation of the internet shaming trope yeah. which is made more powerful by the fact that it's taking place in a different culture where mm. shame has a different function and uh, you know she has an exceedingly uh, domineering father yes. and it's particularly interesting that possibly because of local mores in uh, in Indonesia the internet shaming is not shown as explicitly sexual it's only hinted at whereas mm. if this were made in, uh, in, in Britain or America yeah. it would be explicitly sexual yes. and the fact that it isn't tells us quite a lot not just about the society that's being depicted but also about Indonesian cinema. The mm. performances, although, yeah, okay, I can't understand what anybody's saying, but the performances are powerful. Mm-hmm. It is essentially the story of how within a university community, a university creative community in Jakarta, a kind of a cult is formed without people realising they're yeah. in a cult. Yes. Charismatic power and, in a way, it connects with Warhol, the idea mm. that art justifies everything, yes. allows, without too many spoilers, people to get away with terrible, terrible things. And who does the blame fall on? It falls on women again. Mm. So I thought it was great. Mm. It looks incredible as well. Yes, it looks absolutely beautiful. Katie, you've seen a little bit of this. Um, is it about a patriarchal society? Uh, the thing I like about it is that it's uh, so refreshing to be immersed in a completely different culture and realize, uh, uh, maybe this is not so refreshing, that there's the same old shit. That, <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. That, yeah. that the vulnerable yeah. and that women have to deal with. Um, I did watch it very quickly all the way through at 1.25 speed. <laughs> um, I am a speed reader. There were subtitles, mm. but it is very easy on the eye. The The acting is compelling. And the thing that I uh, was struck by, it's called photocopier. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that, um, you know, at the end, information, you know, righteous information is is disseminated throughout yes. the community. Yes. And it's almost like the power of the printer, the printing press. Yeah, it's yes, very yes. Anal- you know, ultimately analog. Yes. Is the, not necessarily the solution, but analog is the thing that brings this particular story to a kind mm-hmm. of re- resolution. Yeah. And it's it's very modern. The internet shaming takes place through uh, shared phones and through networking sites and all the rest of it. But also... Other motors of the story are, for instance, fast ride sharing, instant ordering of, uh, you know, of, of taxis and other mm. uh, digital services, mm. which obviously girdles the globe now. The idea that we're yeah. just, it's only us here in the West, with yes. our, you know, dominated by our little machines. And yet at the end, the thing that is pulling everybody together is to, the, the power of the written word. Like physically, yeah. you see mm. a hand on a piece of paper writing down things and then mm. photocopying them and then pieces mm. of paper in the air. I mean, I think it's just so interesting that mm. it really does come down to the power of communication, you know, just out of our face and into your ear. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Highly and the autonomy of that mm. against the digital data, which you lose all autonomy on. I thought there were parallels with Parasite, White Tiger, White Lotus. I could go on. And there are, yeah. there's quite a few modern films talking about class, mm. um, often in the covert way more than it's in the main deal. This is about a class structure in Indonesia. We realise this is about who has money and who doesn't and what power that can still yield. Mm. And I thought that that was a really interesting bit about it. Bernard, would you watch this? Is it something you might put on this weekend? From, from your reviews? Yes, from our from our, yeah, yeah, I'm interested in actually. Uh, most interested in something on Netflix that, that, that um, sounds like it should be on Mubi or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think right? it's good of Netflix yeah. to put on your right. Yeah. often when I go to Netflix, I must admit, I've just, God, Jesus, I'm 
I've seen everything here and it, yeah. Before we go, every week we ask our guests to choose the greatest songs of all time. And inevitably, being timeless classics, it's really tricky to clear them. So they go straight onto the playlist. Bernard Butler, what have you chosen as the greatest song of all time? Well, right now? I mean, it would it would change by the second, even in this conversation. I'm thinking, oh, my God, why didn't I do this? And, you know, I did have an, uh, a moment the other night and I'm thinking, right, I've got to get in touch tomorrow morning and change this. <laughs> it's different. And I realised I haven't got a favourite song of all time at all. <laughs> by tonight, about 10 o'clock, it would definitely be Casey and the Sunshine bands or something like that or Dancing Queen or something like that um, but I, what I thought would be good to fit on the playlist was Epic Soundtracks and this is something um, a song called Fallen Down I don't know a great deal about Epic Soundtracks I know some scattered parts of his life um, one of them that always interested me is we lived in the same part of London at the same time and I didn't know him and it always bothers me that I may have known this person at that time. So mm. he lived in West Hampstead at the time I lived there and I was uh, recording and I think that he was in quite a state at the time. He, he didn't uh, come to a very good ending. Right. Uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful record about uh, the song that it feels to me about exclusion and uh, misunderstanding and all those sort of tragic circumstances put to a, a really beautiful song. I, I just really love it and I'd like more people to, to hear this record well they will because they're all going to go to the mm-hmm. playlist right now and listen to it good Katie Putrick, what's your choice for the greatest record of all time? Literally? Well, the greatest record of all time this week in my head. I just cannot get it out of my head. It just popped in there. It's a Blondie track. It's from mm-hmm. their Plastic Letters LP. And I think that's from like 77, mm-hmm. 78. Mm-hmm. It's the album that Denis Denis came from. But it's the opening track in the album. It's called Fan Mail. And it's this wonderful song that has, it's totally power pop. And I'm a big power pop ophile. <laughs> and it has this like really bombastic swagger. It's very stoppy, starty. Uh, It it has kind of a a stutter built into it. And then once it gets into this little middle eight bit, this is almost like Baroque uh, little organy keyboard thing going, you know, sort of 60s. So it goes from like absolute power pop mid 70s into a little bit of like 60s uh, Baroque pop. And then you have Debbie's voice, which is just so girlish and effortless and has such attitude in it, but not in a pretend macho way, like in a Mm. total, if there's a word for feminine virility, I don't know what Mm. that word is. We need it. We need that word. Femorility. Femorility. Mm. Because she's got it in spades. So it's called fan mail and it's so likable and swaggery and playful and fun. Dig it. Right, as Fallen Down and Fan Mail go on the bunker rolling, rolling, rolling playlist, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we take a cue from photocopier and have a whiskey shot and Xerox our birthmarks? Katie. Well, I have perfume on the brain because I, Ah. as you may or may not know, write about perfume. Mm. And I'm just starting in the Evening Standard magazine, ES magazine, next week. I'm going to be the very first perfume columnist. Ah, Fantastic. So on the 21st, the first column goes out. And uh, I'm giving you guys a mm. sneak sniff. Okay. It's a perfume. <laughs> it's Live the in the studio. Sniff it's, it's, I'm, spraying, being, um, I'm spraying yep. on some blotters. Yep. This is by Comme de Garçon, and it is called Ganja. No oh. way. Ranking. Oh. See, <laughs> see what you think. Well, I don't think it smells like Ganja. I'll say that for a oh, start. Oh, it does. It's, you think? Mm, Maybe I've got COVID and I'm losing my sense of smell. Hang on. What do you think? There's an element. How, of it. how about I, you? I can uh, I can get the ganja influence. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hemp esque. And um, it's I like it. It's it's fine. Well done. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the garçon. Come the garçon. Yeah, yeah. And so the bottle's got this little, like, spray did painted. Do we get a bottle? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not smelling it. I'm like, I, I can't. So I've, it, sm- I've smelled it so hard, I don't know what it means anymore. you smelled it so hard. See, that's what yeah. someone who's stoned would say. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, like, when you, you look at a very short word, and after a, a short period of time, it's like, what, is it, what are those letters? Are they, even, mm. are they well, shapes? A, so they mean you would admit that it's quite herbal. It's yeah. it's yeah. quite green. Yeah, I like it. It's bitter. There's a bitterness to it. There's a rosemary. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of strong. thought it was oregano-ish. It's, nice. yes, it's, it's a sort of green. Oh, pleasant, yeah. damning with pleasant. faint praise. No, no. <laughs> but, do you, but do you not <laughs> smell <laughs> the absolute... Like, I can smell the ganja in it yeah, as well. Ganja, there you go. Which is the bit that puts me off. But would Because I can walk down the street and smell that you from get everybody ha- that's... You get a hard look it. from a Bobby <laughs> on the beat. Maybe. It's fascinating. So listeners can get it, can read you. Yes. Puckrick on Smells. Puckrick on Smells. It's called Message in a Bottle is the column in ES Magazine. It'll be at least once, maybe twice a month, mm-hmm. and the first one out next week. I've now inhaled so hard on that, I've actually got an oxygen high. I'm going to pass out. <laughs> nice. Yes. Bernard, what's your closing time chatter? Oh, uh, you know what? When you asked me this, I thought of the mm. first thing and I stuck to it. And it was a film I was watching um, late at night called The Garn. I was on BBC Four the other night. And it's about a train journey that goes from southern Australia to northern Australia. Mm-hmm. And all that happens is there's a picture. You're on a train and all that happens is you, you look out the window and you see it and it's completely beautiful I've watched yeah. it twice now and uh, that really interests me I've never been to Australia yeah. that's the part that it, one of the yeah. parts that interests me and I like the uh, the connection of moving and travelling and the, and the connection with that with music with songs and song journeys um, I've been reading uh, well kind of a little bit obsessed with um, Robert McFarlane's um, Old Ways mm. uh, which is all about walking um, and travelling and the stories about song so um when I watch this this film, I can watch it late at night and stare at the screen and uh, and drift off. And, and I really like things mm. when nothing happens at yes. all. This yes, sounds so like uh, just nothing happens at all. You're just looking yeah. out of a train. When and they repeat just... the reindeer on BBC Four every Christmas, I watch. You know the reindeer journey mm. that lasts four hours. Can I just plug oh, yeah. The Last Igloo, which Love is a, a documentary that I had oh. a part of, which oh, yeah. is, again was uh, a man building an igloo. Over the course of a day yeah, I read about, in the Arctic I don't Circle. Know if I saw this, but I wanted to watch you. That yeah. right up my that was igloo. A, that, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes, I that's see. Right. Yeah. Mm. Andrew. Well, I'm going to bring everybody down with a, the <laughs> detail on the in, the latest infamous garden uh, party, or party rather, at oh, number 10. Work the, meeting? The, the, the work, work meeting. meeting. Oh, okay. The work, work meeting. meeting. Staff partied in the basement at number 10 oh. to music DJed by a special <laughs> advisor. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what music DJed by a number 10 special advisor would be like? I had these tunes on the laptop, I plugged it in. It's just, it's filling my mind with fear and horror. Lady in red? Yeah. Definitely, but yeah. I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a nightmare mix of awful bangers like Hi Ho Silver Lining, Sweet Caroline's going to be on there. Simply the best, Relight My Fire, <laughs> loads of Rat Pack. It's going to be terrible, isn't it? Loads really? of Dino. I mean, not to yeah. knock mm. Sweet Caroline, but in the context not of a, not any of them, obviously. But it's in the just, context yeah. of a party in the basement, the, you know, the the basement of number ten or the upper level of yeah. hell. DJ Alexis special advisor though available for booking yeah. here. Yeah. DJ <laughs> How about your Sean? Well, well, I'm bringing it down with uh, Ronnie Spectre. I just wanted to say R.I.P. R.I.P. Ronnie R.I.P. to the yeah. fabulous Ronnie. Yeah. And what more can you say? Is what a fantastic human being, and the world is for the better that she was here. Yes. And also, it's a nice excuse. I know we can listen to the music, but also look at pictures of her. And she always looked. Wonderful. Oh, she just was like the, just... the the platonic ideal of a street tough bad girl. 
Yeah, some of the suits. I now want yeah. to rep- replicate some of the suits. I need to go down Carnaby Street or something. There's some really, really good looks there. I've liked watching so. when those uh, when those lots of videos of her performing "Be My Baby" uh, been everywhere mm. this week. Actually, the audiences, what teenagers look like yeah. and kids look yeah. like, and yeah. sitting down dancing. You know, those kind of you know, yeah. what was that a thing? Hand drive. That thing yes. when you do that hand, hand drive. Yeah. yeah, that kind of stuff. Dancing it's, with your um, upper body. It's Bring the it moment when you realise, mm. oh my god, that was centuries ago. It really was. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. It's another time, and that's the end of the podcast thank you so much to bernard butler and katie puckrick for being with us and joining us here thank you thank you thank you don't forget you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist the link is at the top of the show notes play a song and send an artist naught point naught 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 probably some more noughts yeah. 2p from me andrew <laughs> producers alex reese and yelena sofronevich thank you for listening and we'll see you next week see you next week The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Sean Pattenden. The assistant producer was Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Culture Bunker.